Here Now is an exclusive CDBT audio interview on an issue that impacts business and the people who do business here in the Great Central Valley. Business owners looking to move their businesses to a second generation, or even beyond that, often realize it's going to take more than a good balance sheet to ensure success when others are at the helm. For many, this means building a business of sustainable value, says Cherie DeMeo, who is an author, speaker, and business coach, as well as being the CEO of her own company, BizGrowth Incorporated, in North Carolina. But just what is a company of sustainable value? Ms. DeMeo talks with us about that and more in this CVBT audio interview podcast. Yes, and you know, it's, it's so much more than a family-owned business. It's any business um, that, that really needs to be taking a look at this. But I think uh, from the standpoint of a family-owned business or a, a business that is being built, what I'm seeing um, and what I have just become extremely passionate about is decades and decades of blood, sweat, and tears being put into a business by the owner and or owners. And then they're either shocked that they, they, they have nothing of value, they get a valuation, and it's not anything like what they thought they had worked so hard to build. Or another heartbreaking situation is they believe they just don't have anything of value, so they'll just you know, stop being in business when they decide they no longer want to run the business. And either case is just... Um, heartbreaking as I said before but also totally um, changeable in what that business could be not just for the owner in building it a value to the point where that owner has someone to some a business of value to pass on or to be purchased or to be acquired you know whatever the end game is for building that value in that company uh, but also uh, a company that can live well beyond them um, and, and what they started. Now, if you are just starting out or you're year two, three, four, or five <laughs> into the business, it might be uh, easy to change course. Just a little nudge on the tiller will do it. But if you've been in business for 25 years, what do you do? Well, what happens a lot is people get as entrepreneurial as a, com- a business owner may have been when they first started their company. They can get complacent and not intentionally but they can become complacent and they are not really looking at how they can build their company to be something that is a preferred place to work is 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 creating such an incredible experience that you have uh customers or clients that would not even think of going to anybody else and then you look at the whole aspect of the marketplace that the company is in, um, the community that it serves, because what I am finding in all the work that I've been doing in looking at sustainable growth and uh, building a company of value is there's the monetary value, and then there is the value of uh, image brand perception in the marketplace and the community the, 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 the company is viewed as such an important part of that industry or that, that, that community 
that the value, you know, it's what's called, you know, good faith value. And sometimes that can, that can add to the bottom line when a company is sold as well. And as a, as a buyer, you, you look at how much they've allocated to goodwill, and you may wonder, how on earth am I going to sustain that level of goodwill? <laughs> and, you know, that is where there are things that the business has to do. One of the biggest mistakes I see businesses making and not realizing that um, how important this is, is to literally make their business so, and this almost seems counterintuitive, make it so that it can be replicated, make what they do so effectively and even so uniquely, make it replicable. So anybody coming into that company and working within that company or anyone taking over leadership of that company knows what it, you know, how its secret sauce actually works. And, and can replicate it and make sure that um, whether it's how they deal with um, their customers, how they, how they work with their suppliers, how they work with their and, and, and value their employees. There's, there's a whole realm of the people aspect that is very important. And I call that the emotional quotient. We've all heard EQ. But when it comes to the emotional quotient of a company, you're talking about any and every person that is touching or being touched by that company. It's the ownership, it's the employees, it's the suppliers, vendors, subcontractors, it's the customers, it's the community in which it is based, as well as the industry uh, you know, connections they have and the people that are part of that industry connection. And when you really start to look at that whole aspect of the emotional quotient and the type of feeling and experience you want everybody associated with the company to to know um, that is unique about that company. Um, you've you've accomplished something that many companies don't don't do well. Well, and indeed that is often the the case. But before we continue down this road, let's go down a side street, if you don't mind. Sure, not at and, all. And and that is tell our listeners about yourself, your company, and how you happen to get to this point. <laughs> I'd be happy to. Well, I started my company actually right out of college, um, crazy as it may sound, um, in 1984. And um, I was a talented graphic designer, as well as a gifted writer. And I started working where I ended up um, relocating at the time uh, was not any place that would hire, you know, there wasn't a big ad agency I could go work for. So I started my company to work with small businesses. And I very, very quickly, very quickly into um, having my own company realized I didn't know how to market and I didn't know how to operate. So I went back to school because the Institute of Art and Design did not teach me about marketing and operating a company at all. They just taught me how to be an incredible designer, right? And so I went back to school for business, for marketing, for public relations, for anything I could consume and understand so that I could be a better business owner myself. Uh, what was interesting around that time, this was the mid-80s, is I, of course, was working with small business. And small business owners assumed, because I could write and design, that I must know how to market. And I was very honest and, and, and transparent and said, no, I'm back, in, I'm back in school to learn that. And so many of them said, well, will you teach me what you're learning? And I said, absolutely. And that is when 
I literally had an epiphany that my purpose was not to create incredible designs and messaging. My purpose was to create better business owners. So from that point forward, everything I've done up to this point, my company is called Biz Growth Inc. now, is focused on building a better business. Uh, make a better strategist, a better operator, a better marketer, a better visionary in what that company could be beyond them, and ultimately a company that will bring prosperity not just for the business owner from the standpoint of you know that paycheck at the end, that big payday at the end, but prosperity for everyone that works for them, prosperity for the communities and the industry that it serves because everyone is gaining as a result of it being in existence. <clears throat> hey, hey, did you have trouble uh, getting this message across to your staff? Or if you started with a very, very small staff, perhaps it was easy to grow it that way. Uh, it, it really was. I mean, I am such a believer in having a very powerful purpose. So clearly, me living and breathing that as well, um, to me, that is such that is such an engagement factor uh, when you have a very powerful purpose and what you're ultimately trying to do for those customers and that marketplace you're serving. And when it goes beyond what you do, where I see a lot of businesses making a mistake, and that's why they can't get the they can't get their team in alignment and understanding what they do. Um, they can't see beyond what they're doing right now is because so many companies have uh, what I call a glorified capability statement that they are calling their their mission statement. And so it might come, it might say, uh, our mission is to provide, and then they'll kind of list, you know, you know, exceptional service and, um, you know, and how they, what they are currently doing, what they're currently offering, what they're currently delivering as their mission. Well, a powerful mission statement actually constantly has you thinking about how you can add to your services and capabilities to fulfill that mission. So, you know, going to my own story with regard to BizGrowth Inc., I, I was doing graphic design and um, writing, but as I continued to evolve, I, I started doing full marketing. Uh, I started consulting around the operations side. I started adding a training and development, um, a whole series of training and development uh, workshops and trainings and, um, and um, programs. Then I added the whole intellectual property and development aspect of my company to help companies um, you know, develop and, and, and identify what made them unique and then protect it. Uh, so all of these things that I continually added were because of that mission to create better business owners and make them better business owners. And so if I had not had that mission, um, I may have not seen the opportunities as they came before me because I wasn't operating from a strong mission. I was operating from what I was doing right at that point in time. It, it, it sounds like you are, became so enthusiastic about your company that it just grew and grew and grew. Did you ever get to the point where, what is that phrase, that you were uh, over, your, over your ski tips or something like that? It always sounds like they're about to go hit the uh, snowbank when they're over their ski tips. <laughs> well, you know, I think, I think, 
you know, going back to practicing what I preach and what I try to do for, you know, for clients and their businesses is you're always having to go back in and taking a look at what you're doing and, and identifying how it can be better or how it needs to shift. And I call that the IQ aspect. You have to keep your IQ and the intelligence quotient of your business, you know, making sure that you are, um, you know, enthusiasm is one thing, but you better be able to back it up with validated reasons why what you are offering is the best or does work. And, and so, you know, part of what I've constantly done is validated through um, best practices with clients, but also taking it across the country and doing research with companies that have been highly successful, um, have grown in value, grown in value from a perception of, um, of, of brand as well as value in perception of, you know, actual stock value, those types of things. And, um, and, and really, about what were those best practices? What works? What is most important? What are things that people are missing? And, and so I think um, you can be as enthusiastic as you want to be about what you're offering, but if you can't back up that enthusiasm with um, solid reasons why what you're offering is of value to whoever you're going after, then, then, you're, then, then you kind of miss the boat. As you were adding uh, more elements to your company, did you st stop uh, and say, how much is this going to bring in in terms of uh, revenue versus expense? Or was it more important to add the ideas and the services and then uh, see if the money flowed? Well, you know, it's interesting. I have a process that I call profit sizing. S-I-Z-I-N-G, profit sizing. A lot of people think I'm prophesizing, but no, it's profit sizing. And I actually developed it with my clients, but I've certainly um, used it on my own with my own company. And what I do with that profit sizing is we look at three aspects of profitability, but we look at it beyond just the balance sheet, beyond just the P&L, you know, and the cost of goods and all of the, the, you know, the financial numbers, because what I found, especially in working with entrepreneurial small businesses, is that there are a lot of intangible aspects of decisions that are made within the company that will directly impact the profitability or decisions made that could impact profitability. And so one of the areas, of course, we look at are the offerings of the company. But we go beyond what is, what is profitable by margin and what is profitable by volume sales. And we look at what is most distinctive, what is least labor intensive, what is, what is demanded as opposed to um, what, is, what can be adapted to multiple markets. And there's several different um, areas that we analyze and prioritize so we can see what, is the, what are the true offerings that are the most profitable across all of, these, all of these parameters? Then we look at market segments, okay? And I believe a lot of, of, of companies, whether it's B2B or B2C, do not segment their markets as effectively as they could. They, they focus too much on the demographic and perhaps the geographic. And, you know, the demographic from a 
consumer standpoint can be census numbers like age, you know, gender, household income, demographics on the business to business side is industry, um, sales volume, number of employees, all of that type of stuff. But where the company gets really empowered is when they start looking at the psychographics um, because that gets at the decision-making factors of who their market's after and why they would decide to have your offerings over other offerings. And so then the third factor is what I like to call geographic pockets um, because whether you're a local, regional, national, or international company, there are opportunities in geographic pockets that you can hone in on if you understand what you are most profitable at on the offering side through all of these parameters who is your most profitable target market segments in a deeper dive into those segments, and then how that relates to geographic areas and pockets um, in some in which competitors may not be paying as a close attention to. Now, a lot of business owners will get so caught up with an idea. They own the idea. They own the, the doodad, whatever it might be, <laughs> the bright, shiny thing. Right. Uh, and, but it's not making them any money. It's costing them money, but right. they can't see that. How do you get across to them the idea that it might be time to cut bait? <laughs> you know, I think um, it really does come back to understanding, you know, okay, when it comes to whatever you are offering, you know, you always have to look at what is in it, what is the value, what is the pain or the concern or the issue that this product or offering is addressing that nobody else is addressing as effectively. And, you know, if it's just a great idea and you can't back it up with a true segment, you see where I see a lot of um, uh, business owners going wrong is they think their idea is something that everybody will love. And they haven't really thought, okay, no, not everybody, not everybody is going to love it. You have to understand that. Not everybody is going to love what you have to offer. You have to figure out who will absolutely love it and want it. And if you can't figure that out, then you either need to change what you're offering to something based on, you know, research, finding out what do people want. You know, don't make any assumptions. I see a lot of business owners, they make assumptions. Oh, well, because I love this, everyone's going to love it. Well, that's not, that's, no, no. Why, you know, okay, why do you love it? And what makes it something that you love? And is that transferable to other people? You know, again, it gets back, it always gets down to the psychographics and the mentality of who you want to, con you know. And again, I believe uh, on the marketing side of business, Marketing is about attracting people to want your service or product. It's not about trying to convince them. Effective marketing will attract and make people want, you know, they'll, 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 they'll literally seek out and want your product. If you're constantly trying to convince somebody they should have it, then there's a, there, there's a big missing piece there in what you're offering. Does that make sense? Yes, it, yes, it does. Now, let me ask this. How are you going to exit your company when and how will the company have changed from now until then? 
<laughs> you know, that's great because I have to say, you know, we were talking about family, um, family run businesses and going to a second generation. And I've worked with many family um, businesses, some that have gone into a second and third generation so um, fabulously well. And then others where the second generation, that just wasn't what they were passionate about. And it was nothing wrong with what the family had done. It was just they had found a different passion and direction uh, that they wanted to go. And so it was about, I guess it's six years now, uh, when my youngest daughter, I have three daughters, um, ranging in ages from 30 uh, down to 20, soon to be 21. And, um, and I saw each of them, I've always been a big supporter of following your passions and where you want. You know, of course, I work with entrepreneurs, so why wouldn't I believe that, right? And as I saw each of my daughters pursuing what they love to do, it wasn't going to work with what my company was. And so I realized that my succession plan for my company needed to be different. And so about six years ago, I developed a 15-year strategy. So I'm in you know, my sixth year, about nine years more to go. I'm on track with what I want to do. But um, I am building um, intellectual property and um, and one of my big key strategies uh, is that I'm working on is a certification around all of the um, growth initiatives that I've done with clients over, you know, 30 some years in business and replicating that so other consultants can also can also um, use this on their clientele and help their clients build companies of value and worth and on both the operations marketing and the whole aspect of value building side. So, but I had to, you know, I had to really take a step back and say, okay, since I'm not going to have uh, one of my offspring take over this company, what does it need to be to be of interest for someone to purchase or acquire? And it was a slightly different track as a result of that. And so knowing, knowing what, uh, understanding um, what it takes and you know in high you know in hindsight now that i think of it you know this is something i should have been doing anyway even if one of my daughters was going to take over and step step into my role and so shame on me to a certain extent that i i wasn't forced to really think about it until i had to and that i think is a a big mistake that a lot of business owners make fortunately i thought about it well ahead of when I ultimately want to sell the company. So thank goodness for that. Exactly. But <laughs> some, some business owners, when they're ready to sell, um, they're already a few years too late in what they need to do. And so they have to kind of take that step back and realize if they really want to build something um, to sell, you know, because it's again, you don't want to have, you don't want to sell your company. You want your company to be bought. There's a difference there. I heard somebody say that the other day, and I thought that was a, that was a very interesting statement. You want somebody to really, and it goes back to attracting versus convincing, right? What I was talking about in relation to customers. Well, you, and speaking of intellectual property, you're also an author of a number of books, and you yes. have another one coming out. Tell, yes, us, uh, tell us about your uh, latest book, either the one that's still on the typewriter, do they use those <laughs> things anymore, or yeah. the one that's already been out on the shelves for a while. Well, a um, couple books that have already been out are Me, Myself, and Inc., I-N-C., and that is about how to have a business you love and a life you love at the same time because a business can be all-consuming. 
So that's me, myself, and Inc. Um, the other book um, that's already out is 50 Marketing Secrets of Growth Companies in Down Economic Times. And it was actually released right after the Great Recession. Um, documenting the 50 secrets that I discovered through my own clientele, but also companies across the country in industries where everyone assumed nobody was growing. And I found double and triple digit growth companies that were growing in spite of the Great Recession because of these secrets that I kind of prioritized and narrowed down to. Um, the, the, the books I'm working on right now uh, one that will come out in first quarter of 2020 um, is called Dream Wide Awake. And it's actually taking, it's actually a workbook that complements me, myself, and Inc. And it is about, I talked about at the very beginning of this interview, um, how important a powerful purpose is. And so that whole aspect of dreaming wide awake and really understanding the purpose behind your company, but also the purpose that each of us has in our roles as, a, as, 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 as humans on this earth and how we can leverage what our ultimate purpose is uh, for the companies that we work for, for the life that we have, for the difference that we can make. And then the um, fourth book that I am, I am at the, um, I'm, I'm at the um, computer tapping away um, it'll come out probably second quarter of 2020, and it is called The Prosperity Quotient, and it's all about building a company of sustainable growth and value and um, that will realize prosperity um, in a legacy-leaving way, that, you know, basically a company that lives well, well beyond the founder um, and is making a huge difference um, um, on, a, on a national or even a global level. <laughs> Well, boy, you have given us a lot to uh, think about. Uh, <laughs> but what would you like to add before we conclude this conversation that we've not yet had a chance to talk about? You know, I think, I think um, there's two key points I'd like to make when it comes to building a company of sustainable growth and value. Um, I talked a little bit about the intelligence quotient and a little bit about the em emotional quotient aspect. But I've identified two other key aspects. One is what I call the velocity quotient, uh, VQ. And that gets at what I alluded to earlier of um, being able to make your secret sauce replicable so everybody can be engaged in making sure it's done in a way that people just absolutely love and appreciate um, and uh, while still protecting it and making sure it stays distinctive for you. Um, the other one is the profitability quotient, the PQ. And this is probably the most critical factor in growing a company of sustainable growth and value is you can actually have a very high driven IQ, EQ, and VQ, but not have a high PQ because high PQ isn't just about huge amounts of profits. It's about how you allocate those profits on a regular basis. And you won't have a high profitability quotient or PQ if you don't. Um, allocate your profits in four different ways. One is to share, and that can be obviously um, profit sharing, you know, obviously sharing with yourself, but also benefits to your employees, sharing in the community with, uh, you know, charitable giving, that type of thing. Uh, the second way is profits that you reinvest in your company, uh, whether it's facilities or technology or hiring or training, a, a variety of things that will help you get to that next level and that next level and that next level. Um, the third one is profits that you dedicate to value building. 
And some of the areas I uh, identify for value building are um, succession planning, um, intellectual property and innovation. Uh, um, I actually put some levels of training because you're enhancing your value as an organization by keeping your people trained and um, you know ahead of the curve uh, compared to competitors. Um, I also put corporate culture and curating a uh, a coveted corporate culture so you become a preferred employer as also um, money well spent and invested um, for value building. Um, I'm also doing research uh, confirming value and corporate culture tied together in, uh, in uh, stock value. And the fourth area is profits that are reserved. So you always have a certain uh, level of profits that are in reserve, you know, that are cash ready uh, in case something unexpected happens and you need to dip into that. And the companies that are growing in sustainable value building ways are allocating their profits in all four of those ways at all times. So that that's a great way to end this um, this interview. To get ah, but there's one more way to end the interview, and that is how can our listeners get in touch with you? I presume you've got a website. Oh, we sure do. Um, there's two different ways you can um, reach out to me through my um, my website for speaking and thought leading um, activity, and that's Cherie Demeo S H E R R E D E M A O dot com, and then my company. Uh, Website is Biz Growth Inc. That's B I Z G R O W T H I N C dot com. And I would look forward to having anyone reach out to me. Thank you so much, Doug. This has been another exclusive CVBT audio interview. If you found this interesting and informative, please tell your friends where you heard it. And feel free to download the audio for your reference. You are tuned to CentralValleyBusinessTimes.com, the place to go for business news of the great Central Valley.